Philemon, there is no chapter 1, but if you will make your way to Philemon, it might be easier to make your way to Hebrews chapter 1, and there you will find, just before uh, Hebrews, the book of Philemon. We read the whole, the whole letter last week, and tonight we will uh, start reading in verse 8 and focus on what is before us tonight. Would you follow along with me as I read? Accordingly, although I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while that you may have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Let's pray and continue this crowd to the Lord one more time. Father, I echo the prayers that Pastor Marcus prayed, and, and we pray now, even as we settle our hearts in the midst of what may have been a chaotic day or a stressful week, or a bad month, we settle our hearts before you, acknowledging that you are God and we are not. We pray that you would orient our hearts in worship, and that in doing so, you would help us to receive your word with specific application and conviction that is true, but with confidence that our hope for salvation does not not depend on how good we are at obeying, but on Christ who obeyed on our behalf. Let that compel us to obedience and sustain our faith, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, last week we began our study of this short, uh, short little letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, who was a Christian who was living in Colossae. And even though it's really short, it's really useful for us, even though it may seem a little bit obscure or distant. I, I, I do think that there is... A temptation to doubt this. Uh, I think I struggled to doubt it as I began my, my study in it. But I'd encourage you to remember along with me 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, which reminds us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and it is profitable or it's useful. So that would certainly apply to, to Philemon. God has promised that all of his word is useful for godliness So in order to be godly, we need this little letter. And that gives us a sense of expectation when we come to passages that may seem obscure or or irrelevant. But I don't think it's too difficult to see how Philemon can be useful to the church. Because Philemon is all about relationships. It's all about Christian relationships, particularly strained relationships. Because there's sin that's involved. The more I study the Bible, 
the more convinced I become that relationships are always more important than I thought they were before I studied. Always. It's always increasing. We may be tempted to think that the Bible is mostly about you and God, right? Or God and me. But it's not. It's about you and God and other people. Jesus made this clear with the simple yet profound words that sadly, for some reason, seem really easy to overlook. When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? You'll remember, what did he say? He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first. This is the great and first commandment. But then he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I spent some time meditating on that. What an interesting thing to say. All right, it's not really a surprise, I don't think, to us that, that it's a big deal to love God. Right? I mean, he's God. Right? Of course that's a big deal. But, but it surprises me, I think, a little bit to, that with God, God is concerned that I love someone else. Isn't that interesting? God is incredibly concerned that we love others. He's concerned about our relationship with him, of course, but in the same way, right, the second is like it, he's concerned about your relationships with other people. Of course, we understand that's because they're connected. Your relationship with God is connected to your relationship with other people. Think for a moment about the weight of that word, the greatest, right? When Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? It means that these commandments stand out somehow above all the rest. It means that that they are extremely important, that they're extraordinary. Above all the concerns that you could have in your life, out of all the things that occupy our attention, God tells us what is most important. Your relationship with him and your relationship with others. So so just, I know you know this, but let's just think about this for a minute, right? Just think about what that means. That means that every single relationship you have goes under the microscope. Every single relationship. This is not just the big ones. But for our neighbors, who is our neighbor? Those who are around us. Every relationship, that includes your marriage, of course. Includes your relationship with your parents and with your kids, of course, right? Your coworkers, obviously. Every single one of your fellow church members, every one of them. Why is this? Why is all of this such a big deal? Why does it go in there? Well, I think it's subtle, the reason that the relationships are so important and why Philemon shows that. But relationships matter so much because relationships are the testing grounds for the gospel. I think that's one of the key things that we can learn from Philemon. Relationships matter so much because relationships are the testing ground for the gospel. There are, there are other lessons, but I think this is one of the big ones in Philemon. That our relationships are the place where we prove the gospel. In a sense, they're a, bar, they're a barometer 
for how much we understand the gospel, for our spiritual maturity. They help us see how well or how poorly we get the gospel. Relationships are the training ground. They're the, they're the place, one of the primary places that God sanctifies us and molds us to be more like him. Well, that means every single one of your relationships, every single one of them, has been sovereignly ordained by God to help you be more like Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Out of the 7.5 billion people in the world, God, who as we have just sung is above all, has personally and carefully selected hundreds or maybe a thousand or a couple thousand people for you to live your life with. He chose, right? He, He has established the places that we would live. That means that our relationships are not accidents, and they're not, though tempting it is to think, they are not inconveniences, and they are not people that exist solely or primarily for our pleasure. They are God's instrument. They are God's tool. Philemon is about relationships. I think it's helpful to have that context and perspective. Well, last week we laid the foundation for this, and one of the things that we highlighted was that the gospel has power, right? It, is, it has transformative power. Remember we said that the characters in this little letter include a murderous religious terrorist, a runaway slave and thief, and a slave owner. The gospel has transformative power. Each one of them was radically changed by the gospel. And that is the purpose of the gospel. It is, it, its sole purpose is to save and to redeem and to transform and then to conform us to the very image of Christ. And so, (laughs) you know, if you're wondering why it is that there are so many difficult or annoying or hard relationships in your life, it's because it's a lot of work that God's got left to do on you, my friend, and on me. You remember that Philemon is a letter that is from Paul to Philemon. It's a private letter, and it's about Philemon's runaway slave, Onesimus. It's a private letter, but it's clear that Paul intended for it to be read to the church. And presumably, we can say this because it's helpful for human relationships. Paul, in the, in the letter, is functioning as a mediator, working to bring reconciliation between Philemon and Onesimus. Onesimus who had sinned against his master Philemon. We talked about that quite a bit last week. After running away, apparently Onesimus had been converted. And Paul was discipling him. He was helping him work out his salvation. He was teaching him to obey everything that Christ commanded. And that means that he needed to be reconciled to his master whom he had wronged. Last week in verses 4 through 7 especially, we saw that Paul understood that the Christian life has a trajectory, right? That it's got a, a sense of movement, a, a pattern of consistent growth, right? He, he knew that Philemon's profession was legitimate and he knew of his character. He celebrated that. And he fully expected him that when he received the letter, his thought was, I know your faith. You're going to act like a Christian, so act like a Christian. 
grow, forgive, love. He knew that Philemon's profession was legitimate and he expected him to act in accordance with that, to forgive. In verses 8 through 16, which we read tonight, we get to the heart of Paul's plea. And if I was to summarize the main idea of the passage, I think I'd pick a verse that Paul used back in Romans. He said, let love be genuine. The gospel compels true love and true love is sincere. I think that's the main point. The gospel compels true love, sincere love. Let's first think about Paul's approach before we try to unwrap some of this. I think the first thing we need to do is to understand Paul's approach to the relationship. It's a central part of this. And in my mind, this has been a key to understanding Paul's message and and how this letter is instructive for the church. Hopefully you picked up on it as I read. But Paul recognizes that, that as an apostle, he has... A, a unique position, right? He, he has uh, special authority in the church as an apostle. And so he could use boldness, the boldness that comes with authority, the boldness that comes with his apostolic position, and use that to speak strongly and command Philemon to do something. Command him to, for Philemon and Onesimus to be reconciled, right? Technically, that would have been within his rights, That would have even been in accordance with Scripture. That would have even been consistent with Colossians, the letter that was probably delivered in the same same package. Remember what he said in Colossians? Bear with one another, forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against each other, forgive. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, you must forgive. He told the Colossians, you must forgive. And then here he is with Philemon, and it seems like he's like light-footing all around this. It's so interesting. But Paul makes it clear he's not going to do that. He does not simply quote Colossians 3.13 to him. Instead, he makes an appeal. It's a word that appears a couple times. An appeal for love's sake. A really key verse in this is verse 14. He said, Paul says, I preferred to do nothing without your consent... In order that your goodness might not be by compulsion. It's a very strong word. But out of your own accord. In in this, I think Paul is showing incredible relational and spiritual wisdom in how he works through this. And I'd like to suggest that there are four lessons that we can learn from his response and how we think about relationships. Especially when there's sin involved. The first lesson I'd like to uh, submit to you is that true reconciliation must be voluntary. True reconciliation must be voluntary. Paul, I think Paul shows an incredible amount of relational sensitivity, right? If you, I mean, if you read this letter, it is, it, it, to me, it feels very nuanced and is full of just brotherly Christian passion um, but he's, he's sensitive to the dynamics of relationships. He's not telling them, get over it. He's not saying, suck it up, buttercup. It, there, there is a very impressive tenderness here. Paul knows reconciliation is hard. When you're sinned against, it hurts. 
And it is hard to overcome that. And even though we're commanded to, even though Paul just commanded us to do it, even though we have plenty of good reason to do it, that does not necessarily. In fact, it rarely erases the pain. Reconciliation does not mean the damage of sin goes away. And reconciliation can't be forced. As I mentioned before, and you'll see this as an occurring theme in this passage, true love, it must be sincere. You can't manipulate it. Paul shows in this passage that he is more concerned with the, with the individuals, right, whom he loves so dearly. He's, he, in a sense, he's more concerned with Philemon and Onesimus than he is with, like, reconciliation proper, right? He's not just trying to fix it so that he can go back to life as normal. Clearly, like, Paul was sacrificing in this. It's probably not a... This is not a fun pastoral thing to do. Uh, he, he didn't want to give up Anisimus. Anisimus was incredibly useful to him. He wasn't just trying to fix it. He wants deep reconciliation. I think this is a good reminder to us that as we work through our differences in our relationships and as we do all we can to live at peace with one another, to remember this, how tempting it is I think it's really tempting sometimes to just shove a problem under the rug because you don't want to deal with it. You ever been there? I should probably say something, but I'm not in the mood for a fight. Oh, what if it offends him? Right? He, he won't like me. This is so tempting, right? Some of us are we're so non-confrontational or, or lazy or afraid that we would rather swallow even our hurt and ignore the problem rather than deal with it. Of course, there's times we need to forgive and move on, but we need to strive, we need to labor for genuine, meaningful reconciliation, and that cannot be faked. But a second, a second point here, and I think this is an interesting dynamic that is barely below the surface, and that is this. Manipulation, relational manipulation is very tempting, Manipulation is tempting. <laughs> now, Paul doesn't really come out and say it, but the more I thought about this passage, the more I'm convinced that this is a critical lesson for us. Paul is extremely cautious to avoid manipulation in this passage. And I think it's fascinating. Right? Again, think about his reasoning. He says, I could command to you, right? I could command, but I would rather appeal. Did you catch that? I could do this without your consent. I could force this upon you, but I don't want to do that. That's really interesting. Why, why, number one, why would he think that? Well, number two, why is he like really making a big point of that in this letter? I mean, remember what's at stake. Paul is, he's encouraging Philemon and Onesimus to be reconciled. He's encouraging Philemon especially to receive and to forgive and to restore Onesimus. And with Paul's talk about how useful Onesimus was to him, Paul may be even hoping that he would emancipate Onesimus. Emancipate Onesimus. Man. Yeah. And send him back to Paul. He was useful for him. So, so we need to remember, right, if, if nothing else, this means that there's been a financial hardship for Philemon. He lost labor, and he could potentially lose more labor. And, there, and there's a cost involved, of course, and there's, there's a personal offense. We think that he probably stole from Philemon. 
And Paul is careful. He's over-the-top careful to not insist on this and force force his will into this. And I think we see Paul modeling pastoral care. He, he, he's more concerned with the spiritual health. He's more concerned with the spiritual health of Philemon and Onesimus than he was with keeping the peace or having a hard conversation. He saw this conflict and he saw their relationship primarily as an opportunity for growth, an opportunity for gospel practice. And he didn't want to undermine that. I think this is uh, enough of a reason for us to stop and just think for a moment. Let's go out of the first century and, and into the 21st century and think about our relationships and the way that manipulation can have a really overwhelming dynamic in our relationships. Manipulation, it's a, it's a way of acting that exerts your control over another person, right? Another word is control. You're acting in a way to control someone. Usually it's subtle or sly or sneaky to control another person, right? It's when you manipulate the situation to get what you want. It flows out of this desire that all of us have to be in control. Some people are masters at this. Other people aren't, but do it anyway, right? Most of us see it as a, a skill. Most people see it as a, as a, as a skill to develop, right? In, in the workforce, this is something that's good for salesmen to have or realtors, right? Or, or, or managers or businessmen, right? And some people have made fortunes teaching people how to control and tweak situations to their liking, right? There's a, um, a well-known book, a classic self-help book where, where Dale Carnegie offers advice on how to win friends and influence people. Surely you've heard of this or perhaps read it. And then there's, there's some commendable traits about the book, right? I mean, but there are things that should be just so basic for Christians that we shouldn't need his help, right? Uh, he encourages people to be good listening, good listeners, to show kindness and to show empathy, to, to not make people feel bad about their mistakes or help them think that good ideas are their own or help them save face, encourage them, things like that. But he frames it all, as the title tells you, he frames it all in the context of how to influence people. <laughs> that is, you don't really listen to people because you care. You listen to people in order to get them to think you care so that you can then influence them, right? You see what I mean? In a sense, it's a book about how to treat people in a way that you can get what you want. It's, that's, that's manipulation. Manipulation can be positive. It often flies under the radar, right? It can be in terms of flattery or praise, false praise. Showing love just so people think you're a loving person. Have you ever taken a meal to someone just because if you don't take a meal, then you'll be a bad person? <laughs> Stack chairs because, well, someone else is stacking chairs and you know, I'm, I'm like a religious guy. And I don't want people to think I'm lazy and right. Like, they manipulate perception. Or you could maybe have uh, a tendency to direct the conversation to where you look good, right? I, I get a huge kick out of the humble brag. Have you ever heard this? Especially in social media, the humble brag. I was looking at some examples. A famous person, I didn't know who it was, uh, tweeted this. 
And they posted on social media. I tripped walking upstairs, walking up the stairs to the stage to receive my Oscar nominee certificate. <laughs> well, congratulations on your Oscar. Thanks for tweeting. Or uh, what about this one? <laughs> um, blessed and honored to be given the greatest pastor in the world award. <laughs> I made that up, All right? But you can see how that would that would that would show up. They're setting up things to, to talk about yourself, to, to, to have an opportunity to draw attention to your achievements, right? That's what we do. We always try to make ourselves look good. Manipulation can be negative. You can throw a tantrum. If you have, <laughs> my son threw a tantrum last night on the floor, and he's arching his back, and I'm just like... He's trying to manipulate the circumstance so that he can, I don't remember what it, even what it was about. I think he wanted an eraser or something, right? You might throw a tantrum, an adult tantrum, of course, or a pity party, right? Pay attention to me. My day was bad. You might be in a bad mood to get attention. Think of an episode of Everybody Loves Raymond when Marie, the over-nurturing mother, whenever she wasn't getting the attention that she felt like she needed from her family, she would fake a limp. <laughs> so when she was getting the attention, suddenly the limp was gone. When she wasn't, she was, she was limping and old, right? My poor, my poor mother. Maybe it's rooted in a desire to be liked or, or, or to be accepted or to get attention. But whatever it is, we manipulate. And when we do it, we have insincere, fake love. It's fake. It's a trap. It's trying to get something. I saw an amazing YouTube video, I think over Christmas or so. Uh, it was where a NASA engineer was having a problem with thieves stealing packages off his front door. Right, or apparently that's the thing. They would steal the packages off his front door. So he did what only a NASA engineer could do. He engineered this elaborate trap. He built this unique device and hid it in a package, right? A, a valuable looking package and placed it on the front step. And, and once the package was stolen, a special sensor would trigger a device that would spray a pound of, and I quote, the world's finest glitter. It would spray it in a 360 degrees at a really high rate all over uh, you know, the, the, the thief. With that, it also contained a stink bomb, but I can't describe that in the pulpit. But he included four secret cameras in the package, which were hidden to film the reaction of thieves. And, and sure enough, the package was stolen multiple times, and now 56 million people on YouTube, I think I was like eight of them, 56 million YouTubers have laughed at these people that have glitter bombs and stink bombs go off in their car. One guy said, oh man, this is my girlfriend's car. How are you going to explain a pound of glitter and the stink, right? This is how manipulation works, right? Mark, the engineer, he was playing these people, even though they were thieves, he was playing them to get them to do what he wanted, right? He controlled all the circumstances, he set the trap, and got them right where he wanted. Now, I'm thoroughly in favor of this sort of citizen justice, right? Don't, don't get me wrong here, but hopefully you can see the point. Manipulation is giving the appearance that we're doing one thing, but we have secret motives, we have goals for the situation that are for our own advantage. It's an attempt to force people to do what we think is the right thing. Not, not maybe morally, but like pay attention to me sort of thing. And as sinners, we, we usually think that the right thing is whatever plays to our advantage or to our comfort or to our status. 
I was so convicted thinking about this today and how frequently I do this. If Paul was so incredibly cautious about this, if he was so careful not to force his influence, which like could have been legitimate, on someone to forgive, how much more suspicious should we be of our own hearts and the problems that we deal with? I, I think we should be suspect. I, I think that ultimately this should shine a light into our hearts on all sorts of hypocrisy. Ways that we want people to think that we are actually better than we are. could also shine light into the incredible danger of doing the right thing for the wrong reason. Right? Jesus said, if you do that, it's useless. You've had your reward. Questions like this, it should make us ask, right? Do I like to be in control? So that's, a, that's an important application question tonight. And the answer, by the way, is yes, you do. <laughs> right? Different styles, I get it. But maybe a better question is, what sort of things am I prone to do if I'm not in control? Or if I feel out of control? What are the tactics that I'm most tempted to use to get my way? Is it strong language? Is it emotional manipulation? <laughs> Is it a glitter bomb? Right? I'll show him. <laughs> Probably not. But what do, you, what do we do? What do you do? And Jesus made it clear that this is not the way of the disciple of Christ. You remember he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Let's think about how to serve and trust the Lord rather than manipulate our relationships. But I really want to be sure that we get to the main thrust of this text. And that brings us to a third point, and that's the gospel provides a better way. Right? Paul could have laid down the smackdown. He could, have, he could have dropped the apostle word. But there is a better way, and the gospel provides a better way. Verse 9, he says, he'd rather make his appeal for love's sake. All right, that is, he would rather appeal to the love that Philemon, right, a believer, has in his heart so that the reconciliation would be sincere. Okay, so where is the love that Philemon has? Like, where, where did that come from? How can I get that, right? If, if I want to have these gospel relationships, where, where can I get that? In verse 16, Paul tips his hand to show that the ultimate source of love and the better way comes from the Lord. His hope is that Onesimus would be restored to Philemon. Look at verse 16. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant. As a beloved brother. Especially to me, he says, right? He was a brother to, uh, to Paul. But how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord? Did you catch that? I don't think it's incredibly direct. We've got to think. We've got to read slowly. But Paul's hope is that they would be restored not on the, not on the basis of Paul's like awesome Pauline argument, right? Not on the basis of manipulation, certainly, but on the basis of their new gospel relationship. He called for him to receive him, not as his master would receive a slave, but as a brother. That, that is, 
Paul is saying, let the gospel influence your relationship. Let it transform your relationship. Philemon and Onesimus, they were both sinners. They, they both knew sin, and they were both recipients of God's grace. Philemon, the one who was innocent in this situation, he knew what it was like to be guilty, and he knew what it was like to deserve punishment. Onesimus could have been killed for running away. Philemon, he, he knew what it's like to be deserving of death. And he knew what it was like to receive forgiveness. If God could forgive and be reconciled to him, couldn't he forgive and be reconciled to Onesimus? Brothers and sisters, relationships are hard. If they're not in your life, I question if you have relationships, right? Relationships are hard. Not, not all in the same way, not all the time, right? But, but in general, they're hard. and It's hard to live with other people. I mean, they sin against us sometimes, but I think mostly, I think the reason relationships are hard most of the time is because they get in the way and they frustrate our own passionate effort to live for ourselves, Maybe you discovered this like the first week you got married and someone moved into your house. <laughs> when I view the world as being all about my comfort and all about my security and all about my feelings, I am in great danger. Because I've got, I mean, I've learned my kids are not on board with Nathan's agenda to love Nathan. They're just not. My wife, she's not on board with that agenda. And God is not on board with that agenda. Rather, God has saved me out of that, out of self-love. And he is committed to transforming me and transforming you into the image of Christ. And my goodness, did Christ give up a lot to love people? Friends, when our minds are fixed on the gospel, when, when, when we are thinking clearly about the cross and what that means for us today, we will have plenty of stimulation to love other people. Because whenever we make fresh applications of God's new mercy, right? His new mercy to our new sin. This, this, uh, this afternoon in our staff meeting, Pastor Mar, I don't remember how he said it, but he just said something about God's mercies that were new. And I was just reminded, oh, I've had new sin today and there's new mercy today. That's great because I'm not having a good day. And I need that mercy, right? When you have those moments, those discoveries that God's grace is bigger than you thought it was 30 seconds ago, you will find that you have more capacity to forgive than you thought you had 30 seconds ago. Because whenever we make fresh application of God's new mercy, we will find new resources to forgive sinners. Do you want to have a deeper understanding of the gospel? Do you, I mean, do you want to grow in this? Do you want to grow in love and in holiness? Do you want to be more patient and less angry and more self-controlled? This is the best way to do it. It's just to practice, right? Like, it, it, spiritual, spiritual life is in many ways practice. Day after day, your relationships, 
give you fresh opportunities to rehearse the gospel. It doesn't mean that there's catastrophic sin in your relationships. It could be little annoying things. Every day, your relationships give you fresh opportunity to rehearse the gospel. It could be the person that cuts you off pulling out in front of that stoplight. That's an opportunity to rehearse the gospel. <laughs> I'm no better than him. Sure, go ahead. <laughs> right? well, what, what do I mean by practice? Well, anytime someone gets in my way, or anytime someone throws off my groove, you might see that movie, Emperor's New Groove. Oh my goodness. Thank you, John. Right? There's this, there's this great opening scene where like this totally self-centered, I guess, emperor is all about like his groove. And like this poor little peasant gets in his way and like the whole orchestra and everything stops and he's like, man, you threw off my groove. That's what happens to us in our life. Like if anybody gets in our way of our agenda and our comfort, it's like I cannot believe that you would consider messing with my agenda. <laughs> we don't say that. We just yell or pout <laughs> or get cranky. All right, whenever someone throws off your groove or when someone sins against you and fails to live up to your standards, this is what you need to rehearse. Number one, God is the loving creator and sustainer of everything in my life. Everything that I have is from his goodness. I deserve none of it. Number two, I could not have failed this God, this good, loving, holy God, more miserably than I have. Number three, instead of giving thanks to God and obeying him and giving thanks to him, I've elevated myself above him as the ruler of my life. Countless times I have gone my own way. I've broken either the letter or the spirit of every one of his commandments. God has every right to eternally damn me to the lake of fire based solely on my behavior today. Number four, but God has loved me so much that he sent his own son who died on the cross from my sin and rose from the dead. Number five, and when it came time, I placed my faith in Christ and he forgave me the guilt of my sins and adopted me into his family. Not as an enemy, not as a slave, but as a child of God. He has given me an eternal inheritance that cannot be taken by suffering and I have the promise that I will live with him forever. Number six, no one, no one could love me more or better than Jesus. Which means that no one could sin against me more than I have sinned against Jesus. So guess what? Now I can forgive. I just got to practice it. It takes practice. Do you see? Number four, and finally, and I'll do this quickly. I want to just remind you, friends, that God is sovereign in your relationships. God's sovereignty extends to your relationships. In verse 15, we have this interesting 
word, Paul seems to speculate. He says, perhaps this is why Anismus parted from you. He speculates on why all this happened. And Paul was a big fan of God's sovereignty. He was a big believer in God's sovereignty. I recommend his letters to you. And uh, he believed that God's sovereignty extends over the consequences and even the effects of sin. Even what was certainly an unpleasant situation, Paul was confident, God is working in this. Right? Like, runaway slave, this is not like life or death stuff, really. I mean, I guess it was for Nismus. He could have been killed. It's a capital crime. But, like, I mean, for Philemon, this is like the loss of some property. And Paul is recognizing God's working. Brothers and sisters, we need to be reminded of this. I really needed to be, I really need to keep this in mind. God is working in our relationships. There, and it's in all of them, right? That means there is not one single relational interaction, no matter how small, that God does not have an agenda for. Can I, can I say that again? Just think about that. There's not one single relational interaction that you can have that God does not have an agenda for. It's true for the people that live in your house. It's true for the people that you interact with at work. It's true for the people in your church. And it's true for the people that you interact with at the grocery store or the drive through It doesn't mean you know how he's working, but be confident that he is working. Notice, Paul says, perhaps. I want to give a plug. In a couple weeks, Nathan is going to be teaching, Nathan Hargrove is going to be teaching a class on knowing God's will. All right? And it's really interesting, I think, that... uh, we have, we have this one little word here, Paul saying perhaps. Or I, think, I think we would be wise, and you'll talk about this with Nathan in, in, in that class, but we would be wise to be very humble when speculating on knowing the will of God, right? We, should, we would be wise to be very humble. We'd be much better off to just sticking with his word, what we know for sure. Where nothing could be clear, where we know that those who have been forgiven much We must be quick to forgive. We don't have to understand how God's working to be confident that he is working. And that should give us comfort. I'd like to leave you with the words that Jesus spoke to a very sinful woman. He said, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. May we forgive in light of how much we have been loved. Father, would you empower us to obey these words, to take them and to hide them in our hearts and apply them to our lives and our relationships. Let us do this for your glory, we pray. Amen. You're dismissed, church. Go in peace.